Thank you, Lord, for your presence, for your mercy and for your faithfulness and love and grace towards us, Father, that never ends and never stops because of who you are. Lord, your grace goes further than our sin. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and praise tonight. I thank you, Lord, for gathering us here and pray, Lord, that you would be with us. Father, lift up our, our hearts as we sing, as we look to you uh, through all these things, Father, through music and, and giving and preaching and listening and just our fellowship with one another. Lord, would you be exalted? Would you uh, help our hearts to focus? We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you stand with me and turn to page 82 tonight? Page 82. announcements tonight we have a normal week this week except on tuesday night there will be no no basketball this week um, also offering envelopes for 2020 are available in the area straight out here uh, there are calendars in that area as well the area off the sun porch also december the 20th which will be friday at 7 p.m the teens will have their annual christmas bash i trust that everything will be above board at that there will be games, food, and a devotional. This year's contest will be an art project. The bash should wrap up around 9 p.m. So, teens, that's this Friday, December 20th at 7 p.m. Also, the luminaries will be placed around the church at 12 noon. 
on the 24th. If you're able to help with that, please let John Durig know. And then next, uh, just some December date information, next Sunday, the 22nd, there will be no evening service because we have uh, Christmas Eve fairly close to that on the 24th, the candlelight service at 6 p.m. Uh, keep that in mind. We'll announce it again next week, of course. And then uh, the annual reports are due ASAP. I believe the meeting for those is in February, but the sooner we can get those, the, the better. If you're able, that would be great. So thank you very much for that. Let's have the ushers come forward at this time, and we'll take our evening offering. Father, everything that we have comes from your hand. And so, Lord, we praise you for this offering. Lord, I thank you for uh, your provision and ask, Father, that uh, everything will be used for your name, for your glory, and in a way that honors and glorifies you and serves your people and our community. And these things we ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. If you'd like, if you have your Bible tonight, you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. Did the judgment of God through the flood mean that God had abandoned creation? Did he wash his hands of us and leave us to our own fate? And if you think about it, what did Noah have as he and his family and all the animals left the ark to keep him from believing that? All that Noah had was the promise of a covenant-making God. If you think about it, if you're reading the Bible for the first time or you're hearing those things for the first time, what evidence do we have that after the flood all will be well besides the size of the book itself, right? He had the promise of a covenant-making God who is a God of grace. God's covenant with Noah is the guarantee that he will not abandon creation but preserve it in order to bring our true Savior into the world. He hasn't come yet. He's not there. So let's pray one more time. Father, I ask, Lord, please, not for your help, but for your overcoming work over me that you might speak, Lord, by your Spirit through your Word tonight. Father, I ask that you would enable us to be hungry, to understand and believe these words lord may you write them on our hearts may we leave this place tonight more confident in you than when we came in and i ask and pray these things in the name of our savior the lord jesus christ the fulfillment of every promise amen we read we're gonna remember we're down in verse 20 of chapter 8 let me read verses 20 through 22 then noah built an altar to the lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil 
from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the flood has subsided and Noah and his family leave the ark along with all the animals they had brought. And then following in the footsteps of Abel, Noah offers the same kind of offering. And the pleasing aroma, meaning what? What do we know from Hebrews about what Abel offered and here Noah offers? If the aroma is pleasing to God, that means the offering must have been offered by faith. And that shows that his worship is acceptable to God, that God finds the aroma of the offering pleasing. And then God speaks to himself in his heart that he will never again curse the ground because of man. God will never use a flood to strike down every living creature ever again. In fact, God makes a promise to himself in verse 22 that as long as the earth remains, the rising and setting of the sun, the change of the seasons, the produce of the earth, those things will not cease. So we have to remember that even today, however long ago this was, it stands. It, it doesn't matter what threats those controlling the media narrative create. God has promised the world will not stop turning as long as the earth remains. That's an incontrovertible fact, right? But God doesn't just say these things to himself. The promise will also be made clear to Noah and then through him to the whole world. God ensures the promise he makes here, again, by entering into a covenant with Noah, his offspring, and with all the living creatures. Look at chapter 9. Let me read down through verse 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So just let me say this real quick. When you get into the law, I don't know why I, I, I just want to make this clear. Like, like you get into the law and its dietary restrictions and you get into like Daniel and his dietary restrictions. Those things are not there to write books about diets Christians should be on. Because what we do is we add in, we imply information that isn't there. God must have preserved it that way because it's healthier. No, here, there's no provision like that. You can eat everything, right? You see that? You can eat all of it. So enough of that silliness with God's word. Into your hand they are delivered. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But... You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man or brother, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So, the first chapters of Genesis, from creation to the fall to the curse, and then God's response to it, reveal that God has a redemptive purpose for mankind. That's, that's part of what's being revealed here. Redemption is central to the story of humanity. God is, uh, God is going to bring about his promises for creating the world at all, it turns out, through salvation. The commitment that he shows to his creation here is only necessary if he's going to continue to work out those purposes. So there are two sides 
to God's covenant with Noah. One side relates to what we could call common grace, which is God's kindness to all humanity that he shows every day in various ways. The other side of this covenant is God's redemptive purposes for his own people, those of faith. On the common grace side is the preservation of the created order, right? The institutions of family and state, which are happening here. The continuation of human dominion over the animals in these first seven verses. On the redemptive side, the specific side for God's people, are the evidences of God's grace in Noah's life. The preservation of the godly line of Seth through Noah. Remember, the line of Cain has been wiped off the face of the earth here. The worship of God through the offering of sacrifices and the upcoming separation of the godly line from the ungodly line, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman, that theme reemerges from 9.18 to 11.9, where we'll go, God willing, next time we meet on Sunday night. All these things show that God's covenant with Noah reveals God's unbroken, ongoing, and irrevocable commitment to the display of his saving grace among humanity. Even the wording in Genesis 8 and 9 is used by God to show he is not setting aside his original purposes. Bruce Waltke, a commentator, shows how the story of the flood follows seven progressive phases of renewing the original creation And they're modeled on the progression of that first week of creation that we read all the way back in Genesis 1. Phase 1 was pre-creation. Just as God's Spirit hovered over the abyss in Genesis 1-2, here God sends a wind to go over the engulfing waters to renew the earth. Phase 2 follows the second day when just as God initially divided the waters in 1-6 and 7, He regathers them in 8-2 to reestablish the boundaries between the earth and the sky. Phase three follows the third day when just as God separated the dry ground from the water to sustain vegetation in one nine, in eight, three through five, the dry ground emerges again in successive stages as the tops of the mountains appear. Phase four uh, follows the fifth day in chapter eight, verses six through 12, when the sky once again becomes the habitation of the winged creatures as God first proclaimed the heavens to be back in one twenty through 23, phase five follows the sixth day when the living creatures of the sky and land are called out of the ark. In 8, 17 to 19 is when the first creatures were called first by the voice of God back in 1, 24 and 25. Phase 6 is the reappearance of the nuclear family in 8, 16 and 18 and 9, 6 when all those who bear God's image, again, now as the sole representatives of the human race, function again as a reprise of the creation of male and female in God's image from 126 to 28. And then finally in phase seven, the heavenly king does the same thing, graciously grants his blessing on humanity, feeds them with the fruit of the restored earth, renews the cultural mandate uh, from 128 to be fruitful and multiply and increase in number and fill the earth while the fear of every creature is upon them as we read in 9, 1 and 2. But there's even more evidence in the text that God is reestablishing his original covenant with creation when the narrative, the flow of chapter 9, presents Noah as a new Adam. The blessing and commission given to Noah in 9.1 are the exact same as those given to Adam in 1.28. Noah is recommissioned with all the ordinances given at creation to Adam and Eve and their family. But the ordinances are somewhat modified now, of course, 
to suit the circumstances of a fallen world. It's different now. First in verses 2 and 3, God puts the fear and dread of human beings on the animals because we find, because he is giving them to humans for food along with produce. Mankind will become omnivores. God forbids the eating of blood, however, right? So the Mosaic Covenant, which will pick up on this in its stipulations for draining blood properly from animals, right? But what the text is revealing is, this is important, is that human life is special, it's unique, it's of priceless value and worth to God over and against the animals. I'm sorry, dog lovers, okay? There's a, there's a priority here. Verses 4 to 6 demonstrate God's desire for an ongoing reverence for human life. What is God forbidding here? He's forbidding cannibalism and he's forbidding homicide. Why? What's the reason? Because in verse 6, God has uniquely and exclusively made man in his own image. And we find here, we really are all one family in this sense. If a human life is taken, what do we find here? We are our brother's keeper. The answer to Cain's question is, yes, you are. What God revealed in Genesis 4 then, with that story of Cain and Abel, is affirmed here. It's codified here. It's made official. Again, fellow man in verse 5 can just as easily be literally translated brothers or brothers. So uh, God holds the community responsible if a murder takes place. What we're seeing here is the foundation of, of government's role in God's world because we murder one another and God requires retributive justice when that happens. You take a life, your life is taken. And since, as we'll talk about later, this the Noahic, the covenant with Noah was never rescinded, capital punishment remains the appropriate response to murder in the world we live in now. Animals can be killed for food by humans. We own them. Their lives are not protected to the same extent. That doesn't justify any abuse or anything like that, but we have to understand the order. Humans, however, are owned by God. They're stamped with his seal, his image, his imprint. God's unique concern for humans made in his image continues then, we find in verse 7, when man is called once again to be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Which is, again, you have to step back and see how broad, how wide and expansive God's grace must be. Sin is now in the DNA. Shouldn't we just stop right here, circle the wagons, and just stay focused on this family? No. No. Apparently not. So, um, again, God's unique concern for humans made in his image. It continues in verse 7. You have that same command, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth. Multiply. And I love it that multiplication is the template for reproduction, not addition. That becomes very important, as we've talked about before in the Great Commission, Right? Church growth is not adding people onto it. That's not growth. That, that's expansion. Church growth is making disciples, right? It's multiplication, not addition. We could pull all kinds of gimmicks and change all kinds of things and mess with all kinds of things and get more people in the door. That's not growth. All right. If I grow a second, if I grow a third arm, something is wrong with me. My body's not growing. Something is wrong. What is an evidence that I'm healthy? I produce another human being. Right, So all of these things are being established here. But be fruitful and multiply has also, think about this, it's never been rescinded. That, that 
that command from God, that mandate has never been rescinded, right? God has never said, okay, stop being fruitful and multiplying. Quit it. No more. God has never said that, which means as an implication, the idea that population control through things like abortion and euthanasia would ever be put forward as options to overpopulation, those are demonic things. Those are worldly things. Those are rebellious things, never approved of by God. There is a grand conspiracy behind the direction of this world. What we need to realize as believers is that it is being orchestrated by the one who was a murderer from the beginning. The prince of darkness himself is pulling all of these strings in the world. When God is the one ensuring their survival and continuation of the planet, unless and until he acts decisively to change its course, not mankind. So then we come to verses 8 through 17 where God describes this covenant, its parties, uh, and its sign, its promise. Let's look at 8 through 17 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Do you see that? I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Do you feel the repetition of that paragraph? Right? Do you feel, do you feel that? These words are an expansion of the statement God made to Noah back in 618. That's what we're reading. The parties of this covenant Right, who it involves are referred to six times in this little paragraph and in six ways. In verses 9 and 10, God says he established the covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. In verse 12, he says, between you and every living creature that is with you. In verse 13, he says, between me and the earth. In verse 15, he says, between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. In verse 16, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And finally in verse 17, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It feels monotonous to our, to our ears. Right? It feels monotonous, but it's intentional. God is making a point. And the point is like ripples in a pond extending out into the future of all humanity, all human history. God is committing himself to all his living creatures for as long as the earth lasts. That's the, these are the parties of the covenant with Noah. It involves you and I as much as it involved Noah. Right? In verse 11 is the promise of this covenant. Look, look back at verse 11. What is the promise? I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy 
the earth. He then reiterates it. If you look in verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So again, just consider, and I'm not advocating sticking your head in the sand and not recognizing the fact that we can be very poor stewards of the earth. But when you hear that the earth is going to be overrun by water because of the melting of things, it is a lie orchestrated by the devil because he doesn't want God to rule the earth. You say, well, that's, that's great. It's not, that's what's happening. All right. The earth is not going to be overcome by water ever again. If it is, God is a liar and he can't keep his word. So these, all this is, is, this has implications for our lives today. This passage, the parties are, I'm sorry. I already talked about the parties, but we learn of this decision from God never again to flood the earth back in chapter eight, verse 21. Turn, turn back there if you would, because this is, this is very important. 821. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For, that's strange, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So the reference there once again to the fact that was first stated all the way back in 6.5 that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, that is being said about Noah and his family now. Okay? Which reminds us that Noah's righteousness that he has, it had to have been imputed to him. Because what mankind actually deserves in any age, apparently, as we discover here, is to be wiped out by a flood. Alright, that's what we're seeing here. Do you see the word for? In verse 21, I won't destroy them by a flood again because they are going to keep deserving to be wiped out. I'm just not going to do it with a flood. That's what the text is saying. So the condition of the human heart after the flood remains exactly the same as it was before. If mankind is going to be preserved then, if history is going to continue, if we aren't going to destroy ourselves It will have to be an act of God's grace. What the Bible is doing is establishing how dependent we all are on the gracious heart of God. That's what the story of the covenant with Noah reveals. William Dumbrell, another commentator, is right. Beloved, think about this. Think about this. Until the end of time, the continued existence of the created order is grounded completely in the gracious nature of of God's character. It's grounded in God's heart. Every moment of literally every day is due solely to God's grace because we never stop deserving to be wiped out by a flood. We never quit deserving that. 821 is used by God to reveal the continued wickedness of the human heart even after the flood if you'll notice very cleverly by the Holy Spirit against the backdrop of the graciousness of God's heart. You see, two hearts at the end of chapter 8. Two hearts are being revealed. God would be completely justified in wiping out every successive generation of human beings from the face of the earth. Do you understand the grace mankind lives under every single day? The only thing keeping God from doing that is his own grace and mercy toward us. It's his own word, right? So 
The earth is maintained and preserved in spite of humanity, not because of it. But if you listen, again, if you listen to the narratives of mankind and media and film and art and music, what do you constantly hear about the indomitable spirit of man, the human spirit, right? And how we're getting better and better and better. And if we just keep climbing and trying to change and advancing technologically, eventually we'll be able to live longer and be happier and have more peace. And it is a scheme of the evil one. Don't buy it. Don't listen to it. The only thing keeping the world from being wiped out by a flood again and again and again is that God said, I'm not going to do that again. That's it. That's literally it. I mean, the, the restraining grace of God is actively at work in the world. What if he removed his hand, right? Which I think the Bible may imply happens before the end. But God, this is God's covenant. The earth is maintained and preserved again in spite of humanity, not because of it. The covenant that God is making here with Noah creates the stage where God can work out his plan for rescuing this fallen world. This is God's covenant with man. God binds himself. Nobody else does. He obligates himself and will maintain the covenant in spite of human failure, in spite of the fact that we constantly break it. And then he gives it a sign in verses 12 through 17. Let me read. Those verses to you again, 12 through 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. See, do you see, do you see God's, when I bring clouds over the earth, God does that. And the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God gives a sign to Noah and all his descendants and to the entire human race, a physical sign, a rainbow in the clouds. Now, there is no Hebrew Word for rainbow, the actual term used here is the ordinary term for an archer's bow. And a bow is a weapon of war. It's an emblem of wrath. God sets it in the heavens as a display, though, of his grace to mankind. Right? What direction does the rainbow point? It doesn't point down at the earth. It points up at God. Warren Gage calls it a seven-colored arch of beauty to ornament the heavens from God who, if you'll remember, is the one that will finally command the nations to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks in Micah 4, 3. Why will that happen? Because the Prince of Peace takes pleasure in Micah seven eighteen in mercy, right? And the righteous judge delights in grace. The bow is a physical picture that God has laid his weapons down. That's what's indicated in the promise of this covenant. Again, the bow is pointed up. It's not pointed down at the earth. That may be to show that God has put himself forward to be punished if the covenant promise is broken. It's aimed at him. This is the only covenant sign in the Bible that can be given by God. All the rest are given by the human partner, not this one. The covenant with Noah, beloved, is still in effect today. God's commitment is throughout 
all generations of mankind. Never again is stated in this text four times. Four times. The rainbow is still with us today. It still means that God will never flood the earth again. It still means God is committed to preserving the creation as long as the earth remains. It still means that God is committed to redemption. That is the place of the covenant with Noah in the ongoing story of scripture. It's a reminder. That's right. God is not going to wholesale destroy the earth again by water because he has a plan of redemption to bring about before he ends it for the last time. That's what the Noahic covenant does for us all throughout scripture. There's no evidence anywhere in scripture that this covenant has ever been annulled or superseded. It stands. So capital punishment stands as punishment for murder. The death penalty stands. Be fruitful and multiply stands. Time and change stand. The fact that God will not destroy the earth with a flood stands. God is Lord over all creation. And we don't have time to dive too deeply into it tonight, but Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, both reference the ongoing nature of the covenant with Noah and the trouble that mankind is storing up with God because he just keeps breaking it, right? And Isaiah 54 will even compare the covenant with Noah to the new covenant because both uniquely emphasize the immovable commitment of God to carry out the promises that he makes in each of them. Just as he promises to never again flood the entire earth in judgment in the Noahic covenant, in the new covenant, he promises to never be angry again with his people and withdraw his loyal love in the covenant of peace. The covenant with Noah includes divine promises whose fulfillment cannot be thwarted. And yet at the same time, it calls the community of animals and humans to answer for their actions, to be accountable before God for their stewardship of the earth and of one another. God's covenant with Noah then upholds the responsibility humans have to bear the divine image, beloved. Somebody is going to have to come along and do that perfectly, bear the image of God perfectly as a human being, or there is no hope for human beings. God never pulled back on them and said, all right, you no longer are responsible as image bearers of mine. That continues, whether there's one family left on the earth or it's filled with billions of people. There is a covenant relationship between God and humans on one hand, and as a result between humans and creation on the other. We are responsible to obey as sons, remember, in a faithful and loving relationship with our Creator and our Father by ruling over His creation with kindness and stewardship. That has to mean that the worship of God stands at the forefront of human responsibility, right? This can only be accomplished. The covenant can only be kept by someone who loves the Lord perfectly and desires his glory, his renown, his honor to obey him above all other things. That's what it's going to take to keep the covenant God has made with Noah. And Noah will fail miserably at this in just the next section, right? I mean, it won't take long at, at, at all. He will become a disobedient son whose nakedness 
once again reveals shame rather than nakedness being a display of a good and true relationship with God. Right? That, that's what the text will reveal. We were given a fresh start. We were given a clean slate and it didn't cure us. It didn't save us. And again, isn't it funny how human beings uh, are always trying to start over and do it right? So that's why we want to cleanse the world of bad thoughts and ideals and silence things, right? Cleanse the world of bad people. Start over with all good people. Who's making that call, right? That's left in the hands of brutes to make that call. You deserve to live. You don't, right? Human being, you don't want the descendants of Noah making that call. And we make it every day. I mean, you... Let's say you could start over with all the good people. We'll be killing and eating each other by sundown on the very same day we thought we had reached utopia. Right? What is mankind's hope then? Our hope is what the ark and the covenant with Noah point to, beloved. It's always been that. Our hope is the coming deliverance of the one obedient image bearer, our Lord Jesus Christ who does not come to help us in a quest to become righteous and bear the image faithfully, but to be righteous for us, right? to forgive us of all our sins and place us in himself like Noah was placed in the ark so that he can be our salvation. The, the Bible is one long story of how we cannot keep the covenant. We cannot bear the image well, and God could get very specific with rules. That's what the law, that's the place of the Mosaic covenant in the story of redemption. The Mosaic covenant will come along and say, listen, you are so corrupted and depraved in your DNA. I could literally give you over 600 rules that if you kept them, you would be the greatest society, the most peaceful society on the face of the planet. And you can't get out of your own way. You cannot do it. All the covenant with Moses is meant to do, according to Paul, who sheds light on it, is make us more aware of our sinfulness by increasing the amount of our sin. What what has God required the whole time? That we bear the image faithfully. That we do it right and we can't do it. The Bible is a story of redemption. And it's our only hope. The covenant with Noah means at least two things for us. One, it is the basis for our ongoing confidence in God as the sustainer of heaven and earth. Why do we not need to be afraid of, uh, you know, of, of the shifting of the world and the groaning of creation? Because God will sustain the created order despite all moral, natural, unnatural, or environmental chaos we wreak on it. And that is sinful. Let's not get too carried away. It is sinful to Use and abuse the earth in a way that dishonors God. But let's, we, we don't need to shrink back from saying that. What we need to shrink back from is the foolishness that tries to make God a liar in its, you know, uh, evaluation of what we can do to make it better. We're never going to improve enough to keep the world safe from human beings, right? Only God can keep the world safe until he ends it, of course. But with, for one thing, the covenant with Noah is the basis for our ongoing confidence in God as the sustainer of heaven and earth, which again is not an excuse to be poor stewards of the earth as the image of God. It's because that's just what we are. We are poor stewards of the earth. 
Secondly, it means that the promise of the blessing of eternal rest in worship and relief from our work under the fountain of God's grace for which humanity has been created, that promise has been preserved. It's going to continue, and one day it will encompass not just one person, people, family, or nation, but rather the whole earth through the gospel. God will put an end to this world, just not by a flood, to create the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The promise is fulfilled and people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation will be present there forever. This covenant is between God and all humanity until that new heavens and new earth are made. And even though humanity is breaking this covenant every single day, God always keeps his word. Beloved, God's covenant with Noah is the guarantee that he will not abandon creation, but preserve it in order to bring our Savior into the world and to save the people that he means to save from eternity past. As the Bible tells us, God created the world with a view to accomplish. So our hope is never in the commitments we can make to God. Take that from this text. Our hope is never in the commitments we can make to God. My my whole young life as a Christian was impotent because everything was built on these big, high mountaintop rededication moments. Summer camp, whatever it was, you go, you, you, you're moved, and you commit to be a better person. And you, you rededicate your life to God. This is the language we use. And now you really mean it, and you're going to get serious. Now, I've talked about this with you before, but it's so embedded in, um, in the church's experience in America, right? I mean, we... We, we don't mean to, but I think we're training our children from the time they're little to behave. You know, that's, God wants you to behave. God wants you to be good. God doesn't want you to lie. God wants you to tell the truth. God doesn't want you to be mean. He wants you to be kind. And that's the narrative our children hear again and again and again and again and again. And eventually, what do they run into? The wall of themselves. And because they've been taught that behavior is the goal of Scripture, and they realize, I can't behave, when will we face with honesty the fact that for the most part, unless you have an embedded family, when kids graduate, they are gone. Gone. Unless, again, you're very fortunate to have a family who it's such a part of their lives to be in church that they stay, whether they're really faithful to God or not. It's just in. It's what they do. But we, we lose these kids when they graduate by and large in mass. Are we willing to evaluate? Are we going to take Jesus seriously enough to evaluate our approach and say, maybe it needs to change? Maybe what our children need to hear is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Yes, God wants you to behave, little Jimmy, little Sally, little Carmine, but you can't. You need to run to Jesus. And he will save you. And yes, with the Holy Spirit in you, God willing, you will do good works. But your good works are never going to be the basis of your salvation. What if we set kids up not to abandon their faith with the gospel? Is that even on the table? We're just going to keep doing what we do and thinking it will eventually, you know, because what do we always say? Well, if it only gets one, it's built for more than one. 
Right? Be fruitful and multiply. Do it. And you multiply with the gospel. That's the impetus here. I don't even know what I was talking about. How did I get off on that? No, I, I know what it was. That our hope is never in the commitments we can make to God. Right? It's, it's, it's never in that. We, you don't tell people, look, yeah, go out and fail because you won't be saved by good works. So who cares what you do? No, 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 no. You just have to, we have to realize you are going to fail. That salvation will never come by our commitment to God. Ever. Ever. Our hope is only ever in the gracious commitment he made to us so long ago and has maintained throughout human history regardless of how sinful we have become and still remain. Right? Do we understand that? Since the covenant with Noah, what has mankind done? What evil have we wreaked on each other and on the world? Think about it. How are we still here? The intention of every person's heart is evil continually. Right? The, the grace of God that we just live under every day, beloved. Let it rain down on us. Let it rain down on the church. Let us realize how fortunate we actually are and then pass that on. God sent Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of Seth, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God into the world precisely because he does not abandon his people and he does not abandon his promises. And he is your God tonight. Rest in him. Rest in him. Believe in him. He's everything. I'm going to close us in prayer. As we sing, I'll be down at the front. If any of you need to come and pray for any reason, we're going to pray. And then if you'd stand, we'll sing hymn number 517 as closing here, 517. But first, let me pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for its perfection, for its clarity. Lord, I pray that we would trust you, that we would trust you, that we would trust the God who keeps his every word. Not one single word of this God passes away or perishes. Lord, we praise you tonight. Lord, please give your people the grace to believe what you have written in your word. I ask this, Father, more than anything. I ask it for myself. I ask it for the people in our church. And we pray these things and ask them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.